Standing Ready, the podcast that gives you an inside look at the untold history of the VA's medical innovations with your hosts, Katie DeLaCensory and Sean Spittler. Welcome to the show, everyone. This is our season one finale. I'm very excited because it's a it's a perfect book end to episode one, which was prosthetics. Today we're talking about adaptive sports. So we're going to be talking with Leif Nelson, who's the director of the Office of Adaptive Sports. And we're also going to be talking with Kyle Pittman, who is a para-athlete, and he's going for the Paralympics in Tokyo this summer as a, as a bicyclist. Very exciting episode. I absolutely love this topic. Katie, what do you think? I'm so thrilled to be ending our season with the show. I think it is a great kind of bookend to everything, as you were saying, and it's just a really fun topic full of a lot of history. Speaking of which, I think I had given you a trivia question at the end of our last yes. episode. Can you name the first sport that was played in VA hospitals back in the Civil uh... War? I'm going to say basketball because that seems like throwing a ball inside seems. You're close. There's a ball, but it is baseball. Okay. Gosh. <laughs> I was thinking tossing a ball through a hoop made sense. Basketball is definitely a part of the story, but that kind of enters a little bit later around the 40s. We see that, but oh, okay. no. Yeah. So. Baseball, America's um, game, America's pastime was around during the Civil War, but it was more of a, a localized sport at that time. And the Civil War really kind of helps grow it as a national sport, because during downtimes, oh, wow. you have soldiers just kind of in between battle and they, they pick up games of baseball here and there and they start to grow the sport during those moments and the doctors are all uh, in favor of it during the civil war because it keeps soldiers fit healthy it keeps them out of trouble and provides some com camaraderie after the war this thinking follows directly into the new soldiers homes that are being built for veterans so not only does mm -hmm. it provide some physical activity and camaraderie but it also keeps the men from seeking other quote-unquote temptations by keeping them sort of <laughs> that's a very nice <laughs> way of putting it that's actual terminology i got that from a, from a report that's from <laughs> so it keeps them it keeps them there but it's actually perfect because these soldiers homes right they're they're kind of located in more rural areas on large tracts of land yeah so what do you need you know for baseball you need a lot of space yeah you see these teams at the soldiers home start to spring up they play other local baseball teams until it sort of grows into being more of a, a national sport. In the 20s and the 30s, you start to see the term recreational therapy pop up uh -huh. um, as, as a means of providing physical support and, and mental support through, through the use of sports. So you kind of see this trend grow. And then by World War II, it really picks up then with, with basketball, teams playing each other at a local level, and then it kind of grows to be more of a national thing. And it also kind of makes sense because the look of VA hospitals changes as well. They're not, they're no longer mm -hmm. located on big tracts of land. They're a little bit more in urban high population centers. So a basketball court is a little bit easier to fit. Right. Makes sense to me. So today, everybody, we're joined by Leif Nelson, who is the director of VA Adaptive Sports. Leif, welcome to Standing Ready. Hello. Thank you for having me. 
Welcome. So before we started recording, you and I were talking a little bit about the history of, of sports and VA, kind of tracing it through baseball in the late 1800s and up through, you know, recreational therapy in the 20s, and then the start of wheelchair basketball after World War II. Can you kind of fill us in on some of the gaps and some of more recent history? Yeah, well, I, I think it, it starts, you know, it starts for us, too. And a lot of things we see today, you, you can trace back to the really that World War Two era and, the, you know, the, the veterans playing wheelchair basketball at their VA hospitals. And that's kind of where the foundation of adaptive sports and rehabilitation kind of came together. As that grew and the, the resiliency and the, and the veterans playing those sports and kind of it was a garage mentality of pull together whatever you have and 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 get it done and let's live our lives and that that was kind of the course we saw until the 1980s and and a lot of different things came together there there were veterans there's a this veteran he lives out in the on the west coast his name's Jim Martinson he started trying to just innovate what were, what was being used so it was equipment right so it's like making a faster wheelchair for racing making a lighter wheelchair for basketball. All of a sudden, the, the sports became faster. Every, just like any sport, you're always looking for a competitive edge. This was one of the ways to get that. You know, at the same time, this was a, the really the birth of the program office that I direct now. And all of a sudden, there's, there's competitive wheelchair sports within VA. At the same time, the other foundational piece of our program office was the, the National Veterans Creative Arts Festival. So this, this world, world of, of therapeutic arts came out of that, that, that exact same time period. It was the year of this disabled, and all of a sudden VA really began to champion these different types of therapies and modalities for rehab to compete and the, the playing field starting getting more and more leveled. And that was really the, the beginning of things getting faster and quicker and, and kind of really resembling what they look like today. Can you possibly put us in the mind of a veteran who's seeking out the office of adaptive sports and, and what, where are they in their life and how does adaptive sports help them? What we're creating is we're trying to create independence. We're not trying to create patience, right? And so when you find us, you may be a patient. You may be on that journey where you're coming out of an inpatient stay in one of our VA medical centers across the country. And that could be our first touch or you're you're at that point of a new injury. I think having that, that free and independent mind gives you freedom to explore your skills and the talents. And, but like it's that identity of whether you're going to identify as an athlete or an artist through the different programs that, that we have. So a veteran that's living with a disability, like we want them to be an individual and to find themselves. And for what we see and, and what we hear from the veterans that we're working with, to be independent, and that could mean a lot of things. Like it can mean competing in sports. It can also mean getting on an airplane by yourself. It could be self-care management or you know money management. Like being being independent can be a lot of different things. But like ultimately, I think that need or want is exemplified very frequently, especially in a population as resilient as as veterans after that point of injury. 
just to kind of follow up of that, when when we think of adaptive sports, we think of wheelchairs and prosthetic limbs, but that doesn't, you know, give us the full picture of, of veterans with disabilities. Can you kind of talk about how adaptive sports helps those with unseen illnesses and injuries? You know, sometimes the most complicated or complex cases that we'll see in healthcare aren't necessarily uh, the ones that are right in front of you where it's, it's a physical disability. And I'll tell you, we, we serve veterans with what kind of have been known as the invisible injuries or that sort of thing. But you look at post-traumatic stress or, or depression or other challenges in, in mental health, we'll serve these veterans as well. And so we look at the like the National Disabled Veterans Tea Tournament, which is a golf clinic. You know, golf is one of those sports that's been around forever. And we found that it's a program that a lot of our different veterans will identify with. And so we'll have veterans where, with PTSD and getting out. It's it's an adaptive sport, but it's it's like we're adapting the environment. We're, we're, we're changing the setting with, with the proper instruction, with the kind of the, the location that you're in now. And we can affect change in, in veterans through those mechanisms, as well as potentially equipment. That same program, about 70% of our participants actually have visual impairments, which I don't know that you normally jump to thinking that for someone with a visual impairment, golf would be the sport through a variation of low tech and high tech, but also good instruction and the right providers and the right pathways. We can we can achieve that and we can help anybody do anything. Ideally, you shouldn't have to like fit into the sport like we can modify and adapt whatever it may be so that you can just participate on that and level that playing field. And 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 I think when, when that happens, people are more successful and want to continue with that for different sports ranging from wheelchair basketball or wheelchair rugby or those sports that folks are more familiar with to other sports such as bacha or sailing or any sport now can really turn into an adaptive sport has been really fun to be a part of. This is fascinating to me. So regardless of the injury that a person may have, they can walk in and they say, I want to participate in sport X. You know, your goal is like, how can we take this person with that disability and get them into this sport? You know, when first contact with that veteran is, you know, like, are there specific goals? Are you trying to do something a certain way? Right. And, you know, it can be with custom customized or specialized prosthetic limbs. It can be just installing a safe and secure seating system that's going to support somebody with a spinal cord injury. Mm-hmm. It can be partnering them up with, with, with a guide or something like that if they have a visual impairment. Yeah, I think the gamut of the intervention that can be done is, you know, we tend to start on the, just that the lowest tech side. Like, let's let's do as little as possible and, and kind of wean up so that we're not being restrictive in what we're doing. So looking at who gets involved in, in adaptive sports, is it younger veterans? Is it older veterans? Is it across the board? And, and what are some of the, the challenges and opportunities you see with each of those? We'll have we'll have veterans in their their 80s or 90s that are first touch, right? We have 90 year old athletes participating in the, the Golden Age Games for the first time. We, wow. we took a, a veteran, a World War II veteran with a visual impairment, skiing for the first time at the Winter Sports Clinic a few years back. And so I, you know, I think the, these moments happen. I think the 
staying cool and fresh and connecting with the younger generation is is essential and what we've seen a shift in an interest that that we've really embraced is non-traditional sports and so we had a partnership with microsoft just this past year where they came out with an adaptive controller and so we've gotten this into va medical centers across the country and we're doing adaptive esports so now someone who maybe can't hold a joystick we have this adaptive controller That's where amazing. we can now outfit this. Uh, if you can control anything, whether it be a, a, a wheelchair with a joystick or a sip and puff straw, we, we can use oh, buttons wow. and stuff in lieu of the traditional controller. And you can control it with your with your knee or your foot or your chin or or we you can do it with someone else where you now you now operate as a team. We've really brought in esports. That's I think that's one of our, our newer mm-hmm. initiatives that resonates with our younger veterans. Um, although everything is shocking how it how it's it's more everything we do you you will see has an impact across all generations you know that's the 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 kind of thing that really sums up the world of 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 sports or these these newer sports is some people got together and sort of started doing something and now it's something that we're making accessible or, or or working with our experts to make accessible for veterans that we serve so it sounds like innovation is is baked into this from from the very beginning. It's always sort of been an element that's been there right from those early garage days. And it, it sounds too like challenges lead to innovations like what you're talking about. Do you want to kind of reflect on that a little bit on on innovation for us and and tell us what you're excited about for the future? I think what's the most exciting for me is the, where we've come in some different areas for the the veterans and, and really athletes in general that are or folks that weren't traditionally didn't have a, an opportunity to be an athlete and and these would be folks that have the the, the most complex physical injury so this, uh, a cervical like a neck level spinal cord injury where you couldn't compete in sports and we didn't have opportunities so maybe you can't push a wheelchair because you don't have the strength or function in your arms really fast what do we have and so sports that have kind of birthed out of that and serving that population are things like power soccer where we have it's like it's like a it's almost like demolition derby with this giant soccer ball with our veterans in power chairs and this is a group out of the university of utah that has made what they call these tetra technologies and they have a tetra cell and a tetra ski and so now with just whether it could be a joystick it could be a sip and puff straw so if you can breathe in and breathe out you can now control a sailboat or a downhill ski completely independently. Someone with a very high level spinal cord injury, right, that I'm talking about, or somebody with ALS or a a severe traumatic brain injury, right? How would we do adaptive sports for these folks in the past? Our only option was it's almost like we're taking you for a ride. Hop in this bucket, we'll push you down the mountain. It's gonna be great. We'll probably get a smile, it'll be fun. But it wasn't that level of independence that I touched on earlier. And things like the Tetra Ski or the Tetra Sail, we're now allowing folks with like a joystick or a straw sip and puff technology. They now can turn right, turn left, put a, put a ski into a wedge position. Um, they can break, they can slow. And and 
so we we had this at the at the winter sports clinic and we're starting to introduce it in, in our sailing programs as well and you know I, it's like about seven out of eight percent acceptance rate which is amazing right and so the seven veterans that liked it told us that what they liked about it is the first time they were actually skiing independently so that's awesome and then for the one that didn't like it, he said it went too slow. Like he had too much control and he didn't <laughs> like that and it was way too safe. And so, you know, like I think it's, it's you know, when you introduce technology, it's not going to be for everybody. But this this realm of assisted technology on the high tech side ha- has gotten really special. And it goes from like, you know, competitive shooting insights and we have like this auditory technology for for shooting like laser rifles without the ability to, to see. And so all in all, the, the scope at which we're able to do sport, whether it's a low tech innovation or the higher tech one, like I just gave you an example of, all of that stuff is is really exciting for me. And the ability to provide that opportunity for sport, I think those of us that, that you know, sports has been a part of our life or you grew up playing a sport and you really connect or associate with that, the ability to now provide that opportunity to any veteran, regardless of ability, is I think is special and one of the the highest impact, or, or at least one of my proudest parts of of being part of a VA healthcare. I assume you guys are using 3D technology, 3D printing technology. How do you see maybe the future of 3D printing coming into play? Well, it's great. So I, I think a great example of this is the in, going back to the end of in the garage, right? So the garage. Back in World War II, even in the 80s when we had those, like the garage was literally a garage. It was someone's right. garage. And so our garage now in the high-tech world is this. So we do incorporate 3D printing in what we do. And we have a, a, a partner we work with creating ability. And so this guy shows up. He drives his Sprinter van down from Minnesota to, uh, to San Diego for the summer sports clinic. His garage is his his, his sprinter van and he has a 3d printer in there so we have a 3d printer at on site at one of our programs so we can have those real time in the time it takes to print we can have a new adaptation made and so something that's worked for five people might not work for the sixth and so we can adapt things on the fly and and we'll use this like with along with our video game technology as well different controllers to kind of different grips for for helping someone hold a kayak paddle but yeah yeah 3d 3d printing is cool i i think the you know the more kind of different the evolution of the the plastics or rubber and the different bases all the way through titanium components that we're using to attach to prosthetic limbs. It's exciting. Mm-hmm. It, it furthers that just the imagination that there's there's no limitation on on what can be created. And so, you know, whether it's to get somebody to fish or to ice skate, if you have the ability and to just engineer a, a custom whether it be a terminal device for a prosthesis or just kind of a grip onto what's everyday sporting equipment to allow it to make the equipment more accessible. It's great. But yeah, that's the, 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 the new garage is the, is the 3d printer and you can bring it right out into the field. And, you know, I think if you have, if you have a 3d printer and like four rolls of duct tape, you can, you can, you can adapt to anything. So kind of taking everything in and taking a step back, 
what does it mean for you to be carrying on a legacy at VA that has extended all the way back to the Civil War? Uh, it's 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 special. I, I feel fortunate. I take it very seriously. I don't know that anything I've seen in healthcare, probably with the exception of of, of life-saving surgery, that can have the impact that that first touch of adaptive sports or therapeutic arts can have on somebody. I'm Michael. My goal is is to just make it stronger, kind of build the help continue to build the science behind what we're doing. I think it's it's one of the it's definitely one of the coolest. I, I don't I don't think any I won't let anybody argue with me about that. But I think it's 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 one of the most innovative areas of healthcare. A lot of times we're we're doing true healthcare where we're yeah. we're treating folks that are healthy. You might have a spinal cord injury or limb loss, but but these are veterans that we're seeing that that are healthy and we're we're giving them tools to champion yeah. and live a healthy lifestyle. You know, where a lot of times in classic healthcare is you're treating people when they're sick. And it's really sick care. As I, I well, we can't do anything for you until you're sick. Come see us when you're sick. We are really on the forefront and have been afforded the ability to do true health care. And there's no one's, at least not yet, at least till this podcast airs, has put a limitation on us as far as how far we can innovate and push the envelope. So, you know, every day I come into work, it's exciting. And, and I think our, our entire team would, would echo that. We never really know what's around the corner, but, but we're excited. We're always excited to find out what that is. All right, Leif Nelson, thank you so much for being on the show. Is there anything else you wanted to share with us? I, hey, I just want to thank you guys for having us, for you know helping us get the word out about Absolutely. what's happening in VA and adaptive sports. So thank you. I'm not going to argue with you. I think it's the coolest too. <laughs> yeah, it is. Thanks. Thank you. All right. Well, that was our discussion with Leif Nelson from VA Adaptive Sports. Now we're going to switch over to Kyle Pittman, who is a parent athlete and on his way to the 2021, formerly the 2020, Tokyo Paralympics. So this is just a, a harrowing story. We're just going to dive right in. So enjoy. Well, welcome to the show. It's We're really excited to have you. And yeah. I just, I think it's incredible that we're doing this episode and, and getting to speak with you. I'm very excited as well. So Yeah. Really stoked to be here. Thanks, Sean and Katie. So Kyle, if you could just, let's just start with, with some background stuff for the audience to, to get to know you a little bit better and, and, the, and give us some context going to give us a, a primer on on you and and where you fit into that world. Yeah, sure. So I've had the experience kind of on all sides of the para community. And the really cool thing for me was that I grew up being an athlete, fully able-bodied, no conception of, of the para world other than what you might see in the Paralympics on TV or, or something like that. You know, I was a high school athlete, played soccer and football and ice hockey, things like that. was able to somehow barter my way into the Naval Academy, and I managed to be a Division One athlete there oh, wow. um, as a rower. Then wow. as a Marine, I was able to, you know, do pretty well physically, you know, maxing the physical fitness test and, and everything like that. Right. And so, I, you know, I felt, I felt that the athletic side of me was an important way for me to express myself and, and, and a way for me to... Right. live my life. It was a core to who I, who I was as a person. So, you know, as I, as I went through my experience in the military, I noticed that I was at this point where 
I was doing something that I really loved and I had had two experiences mm -hmm. overseas in Iraq. I started to get involved and volunteer with organizations that were supporting, you know, visibly severely wounded individuals that had come back from combat, missing legs, arms, severe TBIs yeah. and things like that. And I was able to, you know, really see the power and the value of spending hours and hours dedicating yourself to something, being mission focused and gaining a lot of self-worth, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. re reduction in other types of medication and treatment through those experiences. Your perception of yourself was not that you were injured in any way, but you were helping other people who are a part of that world. Uh, correct. Yeah. So I came back from my deployment and couldn't walk really well. In fact, I couldn't even run. I had to see all these specialists. They wanted to ampu amputate part of my foot, oh, but wow. I still didn't classify myself as the more classic sense of a wounded warrior, even mm -hmm. though those injuries that had occurred to that point had driven me, you know, were all related to when I was, you know, in combat. And would you, would, would you mind kind of telling us a little bit about how your injuries and how you became disabled, if you don't mind? I spent a lot of time running convoys. I had the privilege of leading a personal security detachment. I did about 160 missions. And the idea was, you know, you're on your feet running around a lot of the time, but a lot of the time you're also sitting. And so in order to be comfortable in vehicles, we would reassociate all our gear so we can actually sit flat sit our back flat against something. Mm -hmm. And as a result, I was kind of walking around when I wasn't sitting with all this 30, 40 pounds of gear on the front side of my mm -hmm. body right? and sprinting and jumping off vehicles and doing house to house clearance operations just took a toll on my feet. Mm -hmm. So I actually only like a month or so into my deployment, the local Navy doc said, Hey, Hey, you need to be on crutches for six weeks mm -hmm. oh, wow. as a leader of Marines. It's not really mm -hmm. an option in my mind unless I'm actually physically wounded or I have a broken bone that I just can't operate. So I, I took the Motrin way out, just yeah. stuck with that for about another eight months. And as a result, you can fast forward a few years actually after I get it into I got into cycling and started actually being really good through the amateur ranks, I started to notice a significant decline in my performance and I went into a Navy surgeon and I was thirty-four and I got x-rays. And they said I had 75-year-old hips. Wow. Oh, my goodness. As a result there, you know, they, he, he just said, hey, you're going to have to have both hips replaced in the next two years. And, you know, I, I pretty much left his, his, his exam room in a huff thinking that, you know, here I am, somebody who can max out the Marine Corps PFT. Mm -hmm. Like, I've led troops in combat. This isn't me. No, I'm going to go try to figure it out. <laughs> I was back in his office like five months later asking and pleading for the replacement. So the replacement itself doesn't necessarily do anything for you other than really take away the pain. Oh, okay. And so I maintained the limited sort of range of motion that had developed over years of that wear and tear. And so that's the thing that right, qualifies. Right, right. Those 75 year old hips aren't due to anything, you know, that was, that was you. It was, it was what you were doing in Iraq. Yeah. From the best that I can understand, yes, I might have some sort of nominal personal health history that might have led to this, but I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for what happened to me in the Marine Corps. I, I from having talking talking to from having spoken to you before, I know that that the hip replacement is just the beginning of that story. It, it actually kind of turns into a, 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 a nightmare. Can you expound on that? Because because that was not the end of the story. So so when I when I started this journey in terms of thinking about para and being involved in para. I was actually doing something called the Race Across America. 
And it's a race that goes from San Diego to Annapolis, Maryland, every year. It's done in a, in a, a solo up to an eight-person format. I did it with the other members of, of a team, an eight-person team in 2010, as a way to raise awareness and also raise funds for wounded service members. During that experience, I realized the power in some of the partnerships we had. You know, we'd go down to Walter Reed as active duty and spend time with warriors who were just getting out of the hospital beds and into the rehab and really begin, began to see the, see the power of mm-hmm. our, our knowledge just in the amount of racing that we had done to help them get better and get motivated about something. So I started doing that. And then it was between uh, the summer of 2010 and 2011 when I, I really started having those hip issues that we spoke about that, you know, I got those x-rays and things started to happen. And so I ended up getting a, a hip replacement on one side that worked out okay. I recovered okay. I lost a little bit of power in terms of my athletic ability to execute, and it took me a while to recover. But I was able to survive at least Race Across America as a team the next year. Two years later, I was in a point where I was literally holding onto walls because I was in so much pain wow. trying to walk. I, mm. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't do anything. I, I went in to get my other surgery, and, and this time I went to a one of the best surgeons in the country, not in the military or VA system very sympathetic about everything. I actually bought in a picture of me in a time trial bike and everything. Mm-hmm. And I came in and said, right. Hey, this is what I do. I want to make sure that you understand it's really important to me that this surgery doesn't get messed up. Mm-hmm. As a result, I thought I had a great surgery. Fortunately, a few weeks later, my femur broke. So wow. um, that kicked off, uh, I think three more surgeries to include an infection, uh, waking up a pool in a pool of my own blood and oh. a bunch of other things. Oh my. Um, and 12, 12 days in the hospital. Although I, I didn't ever, thankfully, have the experience of, uh, you know, coming back uh, from a deployment because of a kinetic injury, sitting there in the hospital, realizing sort of the, the fragileness of human, the human experience mm-hmm. and understanding that, right. you know, there's, there's so much more that I wanted to do with my life mm-hmm. to including uh, my experiences as an athlete gave me the motivation to try to tackle some of those those new opportunities in the future. So in fact, when my femur broke, I was doing support for a wounded warrior ride. Huh. I, w- I was out giving them food and snacks, knowing that I couldn't ride. I was able to heal up and then get back into the community as a manager and a coach a few years later. Wow. When I hear the word Paralympics, it, you know, I think paralyzed Olympics, that just seems to be what it's talking about. So you picture like people in wheelchairs you know, playing sports. And even our first episode of the season, we spoke with Fred Downs, who first episode is is about prosthetics. And he's a Vietnam veteran who, who has lost several limbs. You know, that's what we think of when we think of disabled veteran or when we think of Paralympics. And so a big component of your life and, and kind of the message that, that we're hoping to bring in this particular episode is that some of these injuries are invisible. And, and you kind of spoke at the beginning about how if you are just riding your bicycle to, to the layman, we would not perceive any disability there. Can you talk ab- about that for us? And, and what does a disabled veteran look like? Just kind of, let's just bring to light this, this aspect. The majority of people the VA serves from a disability standpoint do have a limited ability that's not visible. And so right. that's something that I had to get my head around. And it started with 
my sort of own experience um, talking to my friends. Oh, yeah, you know, I, I was rated 20% for this or 30% for this or, you know, something, something, something. And that was really interesting for me to understand when I received my own rating to understand that, okay, I might actually be in this category where my own athletic potential has been limited because of my experiences. There are categories, aren't just the person on the hand bike, which is an incredible thing, right? To see them out there racing and working hard and pushing themselves. I'm going to switch gears a little bit here. I know your wife, Abby, is a big part of your story. Do you mind kind of telling, telling us about how her, her role has, has influenced you? Of course. You know, if I can get an excuse to talk about her, I, I, uh, <laughs> any excuse, I'll take it. Good yeah. husband. Yeah. <laughs> Abby and I met on the bike. Uh, 2012 was when we first met. But we really didn't start dating until a few years later. So I had gone through my second surgery and I was back on the bike riding sort of casually. She is not a casual rider. She she is a triathlete and she's been to world championships herself several times. Wow. Mm-hmm. So there was this opportunity for me to casually, quote unquote, ride with her when she was doing all her half Ironman and Ironman training. She would see that I was definitely capable, but then she would see me try to get on and off the bike. And if you were to see me get on and off the bike, the layperson, you would see that I'm not normal, so to speak. And so she's like, okay, well, wait a second here. You you know, you're very capable on the bike, but there seem to be some limitations in how you can move. You know, I can't cross my legs. I can't sit Indian style. I have very limited flexibility in my hips. And so she nudged me for a while softly. And then a lot, a lot uh, more assertively, um, uh, as our relationship grew, she's like, "Hey, you need to just try to go do this." And because yeah. I, I, I personally, I was dealing with a little bit of that imposter syndrome and not really understanding yeah. that there was this category that was actually built for people that had experiences like me or you know were faced with the same sort of challenges. Can you tell me how has cycling helped you heal? both physically and mentally, because you were just talking about you were back on the bike, but in more of a casual sort of way. So was, was that for your mental health, for your physical health? And, you know, kind of how has that evolved over time? Competition for me is kind of a cornerstone to my life. I don't know if it's an absolute for most people in the military, but it it sort of gets ingrained in you in some way, whether it's, you know, is the army better than the Marine Corps or the Marine Corps better than the Navy or whatever, even at that level? Yes. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure nobody listening to this has any indication of that. There's always this sort of desire to be better and to push yourself to see how you really stack up against other people. And that was missing from my life, especially, you know, when I'm lying in the, in the hospital bed and literally I had done a, a race called the Leadville 100 mountain bike race. I did that a few years ago or before my surgery the whole race is above 10,000 feet and it's a hundred miles and it has 10,000 feet of climbing over that hundred miles. When I was uh, totally knocked out from, uh, you know, having this infection and in and out of the hospital, my walk a half a block to a restaurant with a cane was harder than this, you know, over 10 hour experience was. Mm. Right. And so just to give you sort of a, a baseline of where I was or how low I was, right. For me to be able to have the experience of on a relatively level playing field, pushing myself uh, against other people was incredible and working towards a goal. Mm -hmm. I think everybody who has served in the military or works at the VA is mission focused, right? To to have that goal, whether it's 
suddenly you're thrown into something and you're trying to be successful in that moment, or you've got this, this race, like, Hmm, maybe in Tokyo mm-hmm. In, mm-hmm. in a few months. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah. let's build a plan. Let's build how we're going to approach it. Let's get up every day and, you know, work hard to attain your, your near-term goal. And so you can be better on race day. I think that kind of structure right. is something that really helps me thrive and something mm-hmm. that I, I learned in the military and then just felt so good to get back into after my surgeries and I, when I recovered. Can, can you tell us about the Paralympic world and how the VA is a part of that? And if you could just kind of walk us through the journey of, of what it's like to be a para-athlete trying to work your way into the Paralympics with the VA at your back. You know, right now, uh, I think I did a count. This is off the top of my head. I want to say there's probably seven or eight veterans that are on the national team or sort of in the area of where I am trying to shoot for the Paralympics. And the thing that helps us, cycling, cycling is not a cheap sport. There's a big difference between a bike that you would get at your local, you know, big box store and the bikes that are raced in the Tour de France. And in order to be competitive at the national and international level, you really need to have technology that's at least close to what is used in the Tour de France. And that's the other area where the VA comes in. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a veteran's monthly assistance allowance for individuals that have sort of proven their athletic ability or level to a certain extent mm-hmm. that can help me make sure that I have the best wheels mm-hmm. and that I can travel and stay in a hotel, that I can get some rest in the night before a race. Right. All of those mm-hmm. things make it really valuable. And I'm very appreciative to the VA for, for allowing that to happen. So I'm looking forward to checking back in with you in a few months when you've got a gold medal around your neck. You know, we'll do yeah. a follow-up episode for sure. Yeah, yeah. Kyle Pittman, thank you so much for being on the program. I really appreciate the time and all the support from VA and, and, and everybody um, across the country that does all they can every day to support veterans. So thank you. Kyle, can I d- jump in with one last question? Of course. So as, as a historian, what does it mean to you as a veteran athlete to know that this sort of tradition traces back to like the Civil War and throughout time? What does it, what does it mean to you to be a part of that tradition? First, it humbles me and that it also puts my life into perspective because Fortunately or unfortunately, we're probably going to be facing this in another, you know, 100, 150 years um, in a different conflict, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. If we can continue to make our programs available and better, that's a really good way to make sure our, our legacy in this portion of the timeline is maintained. Very well said. Thanks, sir. Thank you for your service and best of luck to you in Tokyo. Awesome. Thank you both. All right. Season two. We've already got season, season two, two mapped out. <laughs> oh, we do. We, uh, I, I kind of think of season one as being our, our foundational yeah. season. So, so we've got our kind of our foundation and, and then season two, we're just going to go all over the place. Great. It's gonna be, it's all gonna right. Be great. So, uh, stay really tuned for fun. season two folks. Uh, we're going to try and get that content out to you as soon as possible. That's it for now. We'll see you later.